Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sexual assault, including my own experiences. There won't be a discussion of any assault specifics, but there will be talk of legal and social factors in the aftermath of sexual assault. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things? Getting clear about sexual assault statistics. Sexual assault and other forms of gendered violence are highly charged issues. The frequency of sexual assault against women and the number of men who commit assaults are hotly debated. The most common statistics that get thrown around are that one in four or one in five women have been sexually assaulted at some point in their life. Based on my own experiences and those of my friends, I find it hard to believe actually that the numbers are that low. But also there are hordes of people who argue that those numbers are inflated. With the popularization of the Me Too movement, these discussions and arguments are happening more publicly and with increased polarization. For today's episode, I wanted to dig into the data to see where those stats that say one in four or one in five women have experienced sexual assault come from. To be honest, I mainly wanted to do this so that I could be more educated when arguing with people. But as I dug into the numbers, I realized that an understanding of sexual assault cannot come from arguing about stats. We need to consider the context and the humans behind these numbers if we're ever going to make any advancement on reducing sexual assault. Stay tuned for the details behind the stats, the harms of sexual assault, and what needs to change. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, I wanted to do a brief check-in around social isolation and quarantine. I know a lot of folks are listening to this or in social isolation or maybe emerging from it. Uh, Of course, some of you still have to work at your jobs um, if you're essential workers. Here in New Brunswick, we are in what's called the yellow phase, where we're allowed to basically interact with other humans now. There have been no cases of COVID in New Brunswick for quite a while now, and things are feeling a little bit more normal. Um, Of course, bars are still not open I'm on day, I think, 72 of social isolation, uh, barely leaving the house, and everything still seems weird and surreal. My favorite bar in town here, Thunder and Lightning, that hosted the launch party of Do We Know Things, has now shut down um, because of COVID. It's really wonderful to see all the community support around Thunder and Lightning. It was such a beloved place in our town, and I hope that it can come back in some form someday. If you're listening to this and you're listening to this in corona times, I hope you're doing well and also know that it's okay if you're not. It is a very weird time and it's hard to know how to function. I also want to have a little personal note about this episode. I'm a survivor of sexual assault and this episode was really hard to write. It's interesting for me because talking about sexual assault or talking about my own experiences is not triggering to me at all. But talking about the legalities around sexual assault or having people argue about what is and isn't legal uh, or what should and shouldn't be prosecuted or anything around the legalities of sexual assault 
uh, and especially how women are treated in the justice system, just completely sets me off. So it was really challenging for me to write about these things that are the specific things that trigger me. Um, but I'm glad I did. This episode is actually going to be the first in a three-part series on sexual assault that will cover issues such as consent and rejection, the justice system, and restorative justice practices. But today, we will start with the stats. Now, I know not everyone loves numerical data and stats as much as I do, but understanding all the factors that go into creating stats is pretty important. What's that saying? There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. That phrase has been interpreted in different ways, but it always makes me think of the subjectivity that goes into creating stats. Statistics are often used as a shield to hide behind because they seem objective. But really, they're just a way of summarizing answers to specific questions. Statistics are political. When it comes to sexual assault stats, often the debates revolve around what the questions were, who was asked, and the context in which the questions were asked in order to argue that the numbers are not the right statistics or that the numbers are the wrong statistics. These are all important questions, and my goal today is to give you some insight into the questions behind the stats that you might have heard. I also want to note that sexual assault is a gendered form of violence that disproportionately affects women and femmes. In study after study, men are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of sexual assault against women, men, and non-binary people. Because of the gendered nature of sexual assault, I'll be focusing for this episode on women as victims and men as perpetrators for the most part. This doesn't mean that men are not assaulted. The data show they are, although at a much lower rate. It also doesn't mean that women cannot be perpetrators. Although it is more rare, it does happen. And most importantly, I want to emphasize that people who challenge the prescribed societal gender roles, either non-binary folks or men who are deemed too feminine, uh, are also at high risk of sexual assault. But those nuances are often not captured in the large studies needed to estimate the prevalence of sexual assault. Many of the available studies we have on the topic of sexual assault prevalence come from college samples in the U.S., Partly this is because they're an easily accessible population, and partly because university students are in the age window where sexual assault is most common, between 18 to 24 years old. The big college-based study that was initially credited with this one-in-five statistic was the Campus Sexual Assault Study. It was commissioned in the U.S. by the National Institute of Justice and published in 2007. This study includes 5,500 women and 1,400 men from two universities. There were no other gender categories included in this study. This online survey included questions about sexual assault both before college and during college. I wasn't able to find specific wording for the questions, but the report states that they asked about verbally coerced assaults, physically forced assaults, and then broke that down into forced touching of a sexual nature and various forms of penetration. They also categorized incidences that they called forced and incapacitated, the latter meaning that the victim was under the influence of alcohol or drugs voluntarily at the time of the assault, had been drugged, or was asleep. They also explicitly say that they broke the data down by, quote, severity, and severity was considered higher if penetration was involved. None of the participants were asked their perceptions of the severity of the assaults. It was just assumed for them. And this is common in surveys of this nature. So the results of this study showed that 16% of women reported experiencing sexual assault before entering college, and 19% experienced sexual assault while in college, hence the one in five statistic. 
It was from this paper that President Obama based his future work on reforms on how colleges deal with sexual assault on American campuses. It also allowed for a lot more money to be funneled into research on this topic. The next large college-based study was done with a sample of college students in the U.S. and was completed in 2015. The results of this study showed that almost one in four women at U.S. colleges reported being sexually assaulted while at college. This was the Association of American Universities Campus Climate Survey, and it's freely available to anyone who wants to read more information. The survey was all about sexual assault, harassment, and intimate partner violence, and asked students to respond about their experiences since beginning university. It included responses from 150,000 people from a wide range of universities. The questions about sexual assault were divided into four categories. The first set focused on physical threats. Specifically, the first question read, since you have been attending X university, has someone used physical force or threats of physical force to do the following with you? And then it said sexual penetration or oral sex, and then defined both of those things. Going forward in the survey, they refer to these as penetration questions. After this question, the same wording was used to ask about unsuccessful attempts at penetration and oral sex which is referred to later in the analysis as the attempted penetration questions. Then there's a question that asks if respondents had experienced kissing, touching of their breast, chest, crotch, groin, or buttocks, grabbing, groping, or rubbing against you in any sexual way. This question is referred to as the sexual touching question going forward. So after that initial set of questions specifically asking about those factors in response to physical threats, the rest of the questions only asked about penetration and sexual touching, not the attempted penetration. These pairs of questions asked about the following situations. One, the person was passed out, asleep, or incapacitated by drugs or alcohol. Two, the person experienced non-physical threats. Or three, the behavior happened without their active, ongoing agreement. Of course, with these questions, there could be overlap in any given person's experience, but they were asked to clarify them separately. I'm going into a lot of detail about this study because there are all sorts of things written about it in the media, many of which distorted the findings. Looking at the overall sample of almost 88,000 women, 24% reported they experienced sexual assault in response to all four categories of questions about physical force, non-physical threats, incapacitation, and non-consent. Of these, 11% experienced penetration and 18% sexual touching. I also want to note that the survey authors also reported on a group of people that they all lumped together under one, but these included people who said their gender was trans, genderqueer, gender nonconforming, questioning, or who did not report their gender. Of that group, even higher numbers of people reported being sexually assaulted while in college. 28%. If we focus specifically on undergraduate women, so just the four years of college, the number experiencing sexual assault is 23%. So you can see that this stat hovers between one in five and one in four. Interestingly, this survey asked about the perpetrators of the assaults, but I couldn't find any information about it in the report. Omissions like these are really common in all of these big surveys. There's all these questions about victims and almost no attention paid to who is perpetrating these sexual assaults, which seems backwards to me. 
If you're curious to know more about the statistics on college-based sexual assaults, Dr. Charlene Muhlenhardt and her colleagues published a paper in the Annual Review of Sex Research in 2017 that digs into that one-in-five statistic and reviews a bunch of the American college studies in a lot of detail. The paper also directly addresses some of the reporting on that issue. I encourage you to check it out if you want to know more. I'll post a link in the script, which you can find on doweknowthings.com slash episodes. There's also an updated campus climate survey that was released in 2019, which shows basically the same numbers as the 2015 study, although assaults are slightly higher than they were in 2015. These three large studies make it pretty clear that the numbers of college-going women being sexually assaulted is pretty consistent and is somewhere between 20 to 25 percent. The news media also made a big fuss about these studies, saying that attending college or university was somehow more dangerous for women than not attending university. But that's also not true. So let's discuss the research in non-college samples. I think it's harder to pin down participants for non-college sample, but there are definitely several large studies that assess sexual assault in the general population, sometimes with wildly different approaches resulting in wildly different results. For example, an annual national study in the U.S. that is often used to argue that levels of sexual assault are not as high is the National Crime Victimization Survey. This study is about crime broadly, and in the context of asking about crime, respondents are asked, other than other incidents already mentioned, has anyone attacked or threatened you in any of these ways? And then there's a list of six examples that includes the phrase, any rape, attempted rape, or other type of sexual attack. The outcome of this study showed significantly lower rates of sexual assault than other studies. This study looks specifically at the number of assaults per year, so it isn't comparable to the statistics we have discussed so far. But the numbers were lower than comparative studies, which I'll get to in a minute. This survey, the National Crime Victimization Survey, has been criticized by the National Research Council for the wording and framing of the questions, among other things. One issue is that research has shown that many sexual assault victims do not see themselves as a victim of a crime. It is, of course, a crime when one is sexually assaulted, but especially when someone is assaulted by a person they know, in a culture that doesn't take sexual assault or women's bodily autonomy seriously, it's more challenging to think of assault as criminal at an individual level. It's also been suggested that people might think if they didn't report their assault to the police, then they shouldn't report it as part of a crime survey. Asking about sexual assault in the context of a crime survey can lead to underreporting. Additionally, the recommended approach for studying most behaviors, including sexual assault, is to ask specific questions about behavior using neutral language without labeling the experience. For example, using words like penetration instead of rape. Rape is a loaded term, and victims are often hesitant to label their experiences that way. One national study found that of the assaults that met the legal definition of rape, only about half of the victims labeled their own experience that way. Another study compared participant responses to two different surveys, one that asked about specific behaviors versus one that asked about rape. They found that using behaviorally specific terms, such as penetration without consent, resulted in 11 times higher reporting of rape than using the word rape. Question wording really matters, and the context of those questions really matters. I'll talk more about legal definitions later in the episode. But if we look at the numbers, that U.S. National Crime Victimization Survey regularly estimates the number of assaults lower than other surveys. 
The survey uses random digit dialing, but then keeps participants on for three years, surveying them every six months. One example given from the 1991 National Crime Victimization Survey estimated that 130,000 women were raped in the year prior to the survey. Compare this to another study run around the same time. The National Women's Study asked behaviorally specific questions, three questions specifically asking about different forms of penetration, and the estimate from that survey was that 683,000 women had been raped in the previous year in the U.S., That's over five times higher. To their credit, the Bureau of Justice Statistics has commissioned an official study to look at how they assess sexual assault in their survey. But as of 2018, the question is still the same. The National Violence Against Women survey was a one-time large study conducted in the mid-90s in the U.S. that specifically looked at rape. They used random digit dialing to do the survey over the phone. Their questions asked about any forced or attempted penetration of the mouth, anus, or vagina. And their results showed that 18% of women and 3% of men over the age of 18 reported being raped at some point in their life. This is a rather restrictive definition and doesn't encompass all forms of sexual assault, so it's a conservative estimate. So only focusing on rape, this study came in at around one in six women had experienced rape in their lifetime. This study was a collaboration between the Justice Department and the Center for Disease Control and possibly was a way of bridging the differences between results in more public health studies versus crime studies. The Center for Disease Control now runs their own study called the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey. It also uses random digit dialing to contact a wide array of Americans. They estimate all incidences of what they call contact sexual assault. The survey has a series of questions that ask about non-consensual penetration through physical force, threats, or coercion. It also asks about non-penetrative assaults, such as groping. Their most recent data estimate that one in five women in the U.S. have experienced attempted or completed rape, and that 1.5 million had been assaulted in the year before the survey. They estimate that 43% of women had experienced any form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. So these are the highest numbers that have been documented. As a comparison, they estimate that 24% of men have also experienced contact sexual violence in their lifetime. These numbers are clearly higher than most previous studies, but they were relatively consistent for the 2010 and the 2015 surveys. So it just goes to show that the context and the way questions are asked can really affect outcomes. In Canada, we have the General Social Survey, a large national annual survey that gathers data on all sorts of things related to social life in Canada. Different topics are covered in different years, and the last year we have data on victimization is 2014. The General Social Survey is a phone survey that uses random digit dialing. The survey has three questions about sexual assault that, in my opinion, are not ideal, but here they are. One, Has anyone forced you or attempted to force you into any unwanted sexual activity by threatening you, holding you down, or hurting you in some way? Two, has anyone ever touched you against your will in any way, anything from unwanted touching or grabbing to kissing or fondling? And three, has anyone subjected you to a sexual activity to which you were not able to consent, where you were drugged, intoxicated, manipulated, or forced in ways other than physically? After each question, respondents are then asked to report how often it's happened in the last 12 months. Interestingly, 
Although the way the questions are asked, it seems that there should be data on how many people have experienced assault in their lifetime. These data are not readily available to the public. I even recruited a librarian, Elizabeth Streger, to try to help me track down the answers to the first set of questions. But it appears I will have to travel to a specific location outside of New Brunswick to be able to access them. And travel just can't happen right now. So the only data available to me are numbers on sexual assaults in the past year. These data estimate that over 500,000 women were sexually assaulted in the year before the 2014 General Social Survey. This is a number that has been relatively consistent over the last decade, according to the report. I really wanted to have a one-in-something number for the Canadian population, but I don't think I can find that data at this time. But if you think about it for a minute, in any given year, half a million women in Canada are sexually assaulted. This is beyond unacceptable. I don't think I need to narrow it down to one in X. Although most of the large studies don't report on sexual orientation of the participants, there's at least one large systematic review that included data from 71 studies on sexual assault of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people between 1989 and 2009. This study estimated that 15% of gay and bi men have experienced sexual assault as adults, and 23% of lesbian and gay women have. This review study included all studies with appropriate behavioral measures and included some large nationally representative samples. One type of stats I haven't mentioned yet are police report stats. Some people argue that what matters are assaults reported to the police, but statistics on the amount of assaults reported to police are abysmally low. The Canadian General Social Survey from 2014 found that only one in five sexual assaults are reported to the police. Other surveys in the U.S. and Canada have found numbers as low as 1 in 10. The reasons why so few people report will be covered in a future episode of Do We Know Things, where I'll delve into the nightmare of how the justice system handles sexual assault. From a legal perspective, it's important to understand how things are differently defined in Canada and the U.S., in the U.S., sexual assault and rape are defined in different ways across states, so this can lead to a lot of debate about what is legal or illegal. Something about debating the legality of various gradations of sexual assault is infuriating to me. Men want to get off on technicalities with no attention paid to the harm caused by a sexual assault behaviors. As a graduate student, attending sex research conferences, there were multiple times when I was at conferences where I had to leave the room due to having panic responses because people were debating what level of assault was technically legal. These intense reactions, while unpleasant and embarrassing at the time, are what ultimately led me to seek out therapy about my sexual assault nine years after I'd been raped. This is one of many issues that's often glossed over in these debates, the fact that many survivors have to spend tons of money on years of therapy after their sexual assaults. But I digress. The point I wanted to make here was that in Canada, sexual assault is defined federally in the Canadian Criminal Code. And since 1983, the word rape has been taken out of the criminal code and replaced with assault. Sexual assault in Canada falls under assault broadly, which is defined by Section 265 of the Criminal Code. Specifically, it states, a person commits an assault when... A. Without the consent of another person, he applies force intentionally to that other person, directly or indirectly. B. He attempts or threatens by an act or gesture to apply force to another person. Or C. While openly wearing or carrying a weapon or an imitation thereof, he accosts or impedes another person. 
The criminal code then explicitly states that this applies to sexual assault and defines consent as having to happen in absence of application of force, threats of fear of the application of force, fraud, or the exercise of authority. In Canada, how this looks in the legal system is that there are three levels of sexual assault. Level one is anything of a sexual nature that violates the sexual integrity of the victim. Level two is sexual assault with a weapon, threats, or bodily harm. And level three is sexual assault that results in wounding, maiming, disfiguring, or endangering the life of a victim. So the legal definition of sexual assault in Canada is not based on whether someone was penetrated. Any violation of sexual integrity is seen as the same under the law. The variation is on whether there was a weapon or additional physical harm that occurred. Of course, what the law says and how things are treated within the legal system are two very different things. As has been documented by numerous activists in Canada and the U.S., and by the exhaustive investigative reporting done by Robin Doolittle, who's a reporter for the Globe and Mail, the handling of sexual assault cases in Canada looks very different than one might expect from the laws surrounding sexual assault. I'll have more on that in the Sexual Assault and Justice System episode of Do We Know Things. In Canada, while other crimes are decreasing, sexual assault is staying consistent. I know that arguing about statistics will not help us lower the amount of sexual assault, but people who want to downplay the issue often try to focus on arguments around the numbers, or around victim behavior, or around anything that takes the focus off the problem, which is perpetrators and the society that supports them. In Canada and U.S., that is a society in which both laws and social structures are built for the interests and protection of wealthy white men and their property. The closer you are to this category, the better you are served by our social institutions and our justice system. This means women, and particularly Black, Indigenous, and other women of color who are assaulted by men, will be doubted, shamed, and even further violated by the so-called justice system. I realize now that arguing about statistics is a fool's errand. It's just not worth arguing about, honestly. What matters is talking about the cultural and individual factors that promote rape culture. We live in a male-dominated culture where men have greater representation in almost all aspects that govern our life and society, from government to our entertainment media. Representation matters. Women's lack of representation in lawmaking spaces means laws get made and enforced in ways that don't serve us. Until very recently, the overwhelming majority of film and television was written by men for men. Now it's more like a medium majority. We are shown film after film of complex, nuanced male characters, with women characters only presented as objects of desire or obstacles to things men wanted. Women and non-white minorities are objectified in the media, presented only as thin stereotypes so that the masses do not see their humanity. Objectification might sound like a minor inconvenience, but these are the types of dehumanization tactics used in war to portray enemies. Soldiers will find it easier to kill people who are dehumanized. If you see the people you are at war with as human, as people with inner lives, hopes, dreams, families, etc., it's hard to execute them. It may sound dramatic, but that's what happens to women. Men are socialized to see women as objects of desire, so then they treat them as objects. Men are constantly shown as having agency, and women are stereotyped as passive. Or if they are not passive, then they deserve to be punished. Objectification is how men can justify their violence against women, sexual or otherwise. 
It's how police and governments justify violence against Black and Indigenous people. They don't see them as full people. They don't see their humanity. All of these things are connected. Throughout history, there have been justifications for why sexual assault of women was not important and should be dismissed. Sexual violence in Canada was not taken seriously or recognized at all until feminist activists started drawing attention to it in the 1970s. This led to the legal reforms in the 80s that criminalized sexual assault more broadly and made it illegal for a husband to rape his wife. Before 1983, raping one's wife was legal because apparently entering into a marriage contract meant you always had to be available for penetration. Husbands had agency over their bodies. Wives did not. In an article outlining historical influences on the attitudes towards sexual violence, Garvey and Sen provide evidence of writing from the early 1900s, both in academic research and popular writing, such as marriage manuals, that claimed that women wanted rough or painful sex and or they wanted to be dominated. These days, it's men on Reddit or relationship gurus or pickup artists who give that advice. Of course, plenty of women do enjoy rough sex. Plenty of women do like to be dominated, but it varies by person. And even if someone is extremely into violent, painful sex in which they're being dominated, no one wants that without consenting to it. However, because of the narratives around women's desire for domination in the early 1900s, it set the framework not to take women's experiences of rape seriously. Victim blaming, while common now, was taken for granted in the early 1900s. Victim blaming happens in other domains, but it's especially prevalent with sexual assault. In psychology, there are a number of theories that explain why people might default to victim blaming. Most of it is around trying to psychologically protect oneself. One theory is called the just world hypothesis. The idea behind it is that people want to believe that the world is just and that bad things do not happen to good people. Therefore, if something bad happens, the person must deserve it, and people will justify to themselves why the victim is at fault. People of all genders do this. Some have even argued that women are more likely to victim blame in sexual assault situations because they want to distance themselves from the victim. The rationale is, if the victim is at fault because of her behavior, then the woman blaming her can feel safe because she would never behave that way, and so she would never be assaulted. For men, they might see similarities to themselves in the behavior of the perpetrator, so they're also motivated to blame the victim to distance themselves from the possibility of being seen as a rapist. Rape myths are a collection of beliefs about sexual assault victimization. These include things like, if a woman dresses slutty, she wants sex, or if someone doesn't fight back, it wasn't really rape, etc. These are commonly believed myths about sexual assault that are directly linked to how likely someone will be to blame a victim. The more you believe these myths, the more likely you will be to dismiss women's claims of sexual assault. When people say believe women, what that really means is don't just immediately jump to dismissing women's claims or finding any excuse you can to blame the victim, which is what happens constantly. This massively contributes to women not reporting sexual assault and allows those who do the assaulting to continue on without any learning or consequences. Victims, too, blame themselves. I know I have. For victims, hearing from others that they are believed can help reduce their own feelings of blame and shame and can contribute to healing. The Me Too movement hitting the mainstream has brought women's experiences with assault and harassment more into the spotlight, but it has also increased backlash from men. Being a woman talking about sexual violence publicly has always been a guaranteed ticket to death threats and rape threats. Just look at any related posts on Twitter. 
But those attacks seem to have increased, in visibility at least, even more so over the last few years. People are so concerned about men's careers being ruined that the focus goes immediately to smearing women who make accusations, and then men get to dominate the narrative. As usual. Since men get to be seen as nuanced and complex humans with so much to lose, and women often do not, I wanted to provide some details about some of the fallout I've experienced from being sexually assaulted. It's just one small way to add humanity to sexual assault victims. I was sexually assaulted six times to varying degrees of severity between the ages of 14 to 24. The people who assaulted me were all boys and men. Four of them were people I knew. Two of them were strangers. All of these assaults meet the legal definition of sexual assault in Canada. I have never reported these assaults or sought any sort of punishment for the perpetrators. As a teenage feminist, I was very aware of how sexual assault victims were treated, and there was no way I wanted to expose myself to that. When it happened at work, I didn't even tell my boss because the guy who did it was recently married and his wife newly pregnant, and I didn't want him to get fired. But I had panic attacks when I knew I had to see him at work, and I ended up leaving that job. From a psychological perspective, after my initial bed of therapy about sexual assault in 2007, I was mostly okay. I'm really good at shoving my feelings deep down. But as I know now, that is not a good idea in the long run. Since the Jean Gomeshi trial and the subsequent flood of Me Too accusations bringing sexual assault more broadly into the media, I've had a really hard time. Commentary about the victims in the Jean Gomeshi trial was incredibly triggering for me. This is why women do not come forward. When Gomeshi was cleared of all charges, I happened to be teaching about sexual assault that week, and I ended up crying in front of my 75-person class. It was so embarrassing. I understand that in the Gomeshi case, there was reasonable doubt and the ruling makes sense to me, but it's such a clear example of how the legal system doesn't work for traumatized people. Since then, I've had a hard time teaching about sexual assault in my classes, and I mostly avoid it. When Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was testifying against Brett Kavanaugh, I sat alone at my parents' house watching her and weeping. When I read Chanel Miller's book, Know My Name, about her experiences with being assaulted and dealing with being re-traumatized by the legal system, I cried for days. But I also could not put it down. I highly recommend her book. For me, it's a feeling of helplessness. A feeling that no matter what, victims will never get justice. Not in the way the world is set up now. Writing this podcast was really, really difficult for me. It took me weeks. I kept dissociating, and I felt so scattered all the time, even when I wasn't working on it. I decided to delay it to this week so I'd have a chance to talk to my therapist about it first. But when I met with her last, I was so scattered that I forgot. So now you're all getting my raw feelings. You're welcome. One last thing that I want to touch on briefly in this episode, and that I will get more into in the Justice System episode, is trauma responses. Much of what gets discussed in the media and in courtrooms is challenging the credibility of victims based on the way they behave, the inconsistencies in their stories, and their past sexual behavior. We expect victims of assault to be A, attacked by strangers, B, fight, C, be appropriately upset, and D, always make very clear sense. There is plenty of documented evidence of the variety of ways that people respond in the aftermath of a sexual assault or other trauma. First of all, when we're overwhelmed by fear, the responses are fight, flight, or freeze. And many, many people freeze. 
What people expect of victims is fight or flight. And that does sometimes happen. But freezing is also extremely common. It's part of our nervous system's way of trying to protect us. People who froze in the moment or who didn't fight or who didn't scream often have a lot of self-blame and shame. Like they should have done something more to stop the assault. If that happened to you, please know that in that moment, you couldn't do anything but what you did. You were overwhelmed and your body did what it needed to do to cope. It's not your fault and it was never your fault. Another response that sometimes happens is trying to normalize the situation. This can happen by trying to behave normally during the assault to avoid further violence, and it can also happen after being sexually assaulted. There's a comic about this that I love that I'll link in the show notes and in the script on the Do We Know Things website. It's called Trigger Warning colon Breakfast. And the first line is, The morning after I was raped, I made my rapist breakfast. It goes on to describe the person's experience and their self-blame, and it challenges the idea of the perfect victim. These kinds of behaviors, such as texting the person, emailing the person, and even being friendly with the person are all common. But these same behaviors are often used against victims because it's not how a victim is supposed to behave. When I was raped in 1998, my response was to try to take control of the situation. I called my rapist for like a week straight, and when he finally answered the phone, I asked him to meet me at a park to discuss what had happened. Somehow, in my mind, if we could talk about it and he could apologize, then I would be okay. Of course, that is not what happened. It did not go well, and it definitely made things way worse for me. At another point, I saw him at a social gathering and hugged him. For years, I rattled that hug around in my brain, just like, why did I do that? I think if more survivors come forward and talk about these behaviors, it can help to collectively reduce shame, and it can also bring awareness to the diversity of responses to sexual assault. Another thing that I did on Instinct back in 1998 that turned out to be a great strategy was that I wrote and wrote and wrote about the experience. I just needed to write. That's still my go-to when I'm really upset about something. It's how I process things. I was stage managing a play at the time, and I even still have a copy of the script that I was writing all over backstage during the downtime. In 2005, when I started grad school at the University of Texas at Austin, I met psychology researcher Dr. Jamie Pennebaker and learned that he had conducted many studies that found writing about trauma after it happens is actually a reasonably effective method of treating trauma. I had no idea. Trauma can also mess with our memories. This is why survivors might often have a hard time remembering specifics or remembering things in a linear fashion. And this is another thing that reporters and lawyers love to tear people apart for. Memory in general is unreliable, and during a traumatic situation where a person is dissociating, it can be even more jumbled. If anything, this is evidence that trauma did happen. Trauma responses are complex and differ from person to person. If you are a trauma survivor, whatever the cause, I encourage you to be gentle with yourself. You did what you needed to do in that moment to stay safe and make sense of the world. It's not your fault. When I first started thinking about this episode, I wanted it to be about numbers and statistics. I thought if somehow I could present people with irrefutable evidence that women are sexually assaulted in alarming numbers, then somehow men would care, would take me seriously, would not write me off as a hysterical woman, a feminazi, etc. And honestly, statistics feel safe to me. They feel like a backup, so I can point to something outside of me and say, well, if you don't believe me, look at these numbers. But the more I read and the more angry and upset I got, I realized that it doesn't matter. 
People who want to deny other people's humanity will do so regardless of any statistics I can throw at them. That's why I wanted to add in some of my own stories and some context to add humanity, to hope that people might be kinder and more understanding to sexual assault survivors. The point still remains, though, that regardless of the exact numbers, currently in the U.S. and Canada alone, there are tens of millions of women who are sexual assault survivors. This is an extraordinary number, and it permeates our culture and causes fear. And the answer to this isn't more numbers. The answer is to change the culture, to challenge the ideals around gender stereotypes, to push back against victim blaming. Everyone knows someone, or many someones, who have been sexually assaulted. And if you think you don't, you are wrong. We are everywhere. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. Thanks to librarian Elizabeth Streger for digging into the general social survey data for me. And I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DeweyKnowThings, and you can email me at DeweyKnowThings at gmail.com. DeweyKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>